Hello, it's Tuesday, March the 15th, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show, coming as ever from the Daily Mail newsroom. Coming up, we're going to be talking about how online lessons are going to be made available to tens of thousands of refugee pupils as they transition to new life in the UK. A coffee shop opening in London aims to transform the lives of homeless people. It's replicating a great success story in Scotland. I'll be talking to the founder. Also, the fate of the Russian journalist who ran onto a TV programme, state-controlled, with a sign saying, no war, stop the war, don't believe the propaganda, they're lying to you. She could face 15 years in prison or worse. But first, I'm talking to Lord Dannett, the former head of the British Army, about reports that the Russian army may only be able to sustain full fighting for another 10 to 14 days. Russian forces may only be able to sustain full fighting capacity for another 10 to 14 days, according to some senior UK defence sources. Advances across Ukraine have been juddering to a halt, with reports that Moscow's manpower is running short. Ukrainian President Zelensky said in an early morning address that his military continues to inflict what he describes as devastating losses on Russian troops. I'm joined now by General Lord Dannett, the former head of the British Army. Lord Dannett, it's difficult because, as you know better than most, one of the first casualties in war can be truth, but it is pretty apparent this isn't going as well as Putin hoped. Do you think it is a possibility it could all unravel within two weeks? Well, it's difficult to say, Andrew. I think there are various pieces of the jigsaw which are becoming a little bit clearer. When you put them together, it's then a question of what picture you paint. Immediately, we are, as of today, as of this moment, understanding that the mayor of Kiev is about to impose a 35-hour curfew uh, on Kiev because it would seem after a pause of the last two or three days that the Russians might be going to make a rather more determined effort on Kiev. We also heard reports emanating from the United States that uh, Russia has been asking China for more military support. And of course, this all points to the fact that not what Russia has tried to do, what Vladimir Putin from the Kremlin has tried to do, and it's important that we separate that away from the Russian people, is to make a significant attack on Ukraine. Now, we might have thought that a force of 150 to 190,000 Russian troops massing as they were two or three weeks ago on the Ukrainian border was quite significant. But it's worth considering this. Kyiv today is about the size of Berlin in 1945. When the Red Army attacked and captured Berlin in 1945, it required a million and a half men. Now, the Russians have attacked Ukraine, a huge country, from three different directions with a force of no more than 190,000 maximum. They've taken a heck of a lot of casualties. They just haven't got the manpower strength to achieve their objectives, which is why they have resorted to the appalling tactic of encircling towns, cities, and shelling them to try and bring the people to their knees through just killing civilians. It's an appalling way to conduct warfare. And there are signs that Russia is faltering, and there's equally signs that the Ukrainian people, the Ukraine army, Lord Danet, is fighting back hard. But does the strategy Putin's adopting, which you say is appalling, bombarding civilians, encircling towns, might it succeed in the way that the conventional attack has appears to be failing? Well, I think this will depend entirely on the will of 
the Ukrainian government, how President Zelensky reads the mood of his people. As I suggested just now, the Russians don't have the military strength, particularly to push a determined attack into Kyiv. You know, we heard reports that they are 12 miles away from the center. 12 miles away from the center of any city is one hell of a long way. And they just don't have the manpower to fight in there. So, or fight through there to the center. So it's going to come back to this question of encircling and attacks by missile, attacks by artillery. And a judgment that the Ukrainian government's going to have to make is just how much their people can take. So it's going to come down to the will of the people of Ukraine, the will of the Ukrainian government, rather more than Russian firepower. It's desperately sad, that, isn't it? Because, of course, they want to resist the advance of Putin. They don't want Putin setting up a puppet government in Kyiv. But ultimately, it's a big decision for the president, Lord Dannett, isn't it? Because how much more suffering can he allow to be inflicted on his people and his towns? Well, I think that's the really material point, which is why I hope at this moment that um, particularly the United States government is working the back channels to the Chinese government to persuade them that acknowledging that Putin hates the West, but actually he fears China and that the Americans need to put pressure on the Chinese to come in as a third party to facilitate some kind of discussion around the conference table to end this. And then, of course, if we get Putin around the conference table, What are the agenda points that they're going to discuss? I think he will press for a change of regime in Kyiv. He will press to maintain control of Crimea, of course, which he already has, uh, and also the the land corridor that he has through to uh, eastern Ukraine and uh, through to Russia itself, and also an undertaking that um, Ukraine will will never join NATO. Now, Those things are big asks. They're undoubtedly what Putin will put on the table. But, of course, from Zelensky's point of view, he he can't accede to those. And here's the big, big issue. If the West, if we in the West feel that Ukraine is just taking too much punishment, I wonder if Western governments will start to put pressure on Zelensky to say, you've got to stop this. And he may feel that he's got to go along with that. And, of course, if they do and the outcome is bad for Ukraine, then it's even worse for the West, because the West will be accused of having, on the one hand, said we support Ukraine, on the other hand, having sold sold them short. So I'm afraid there are no good answers here at the present moment. We know that Boris Johnson speaks a lot to Zelensky, but we obviously we don't know what's said between the two men. I wonder, Lord Dannett, if the president could be persuaded that that part of the Ukraine, which has already fallen to Russia back in 2014, if he keeps it, because it's effectively been Russian for the last eight years, and maybe he can rule out a NATO membership application for 20 years, perhaps, as a compromise. Might that be enough for Putin? Well, I think if negotiations are going to start, that is the kind of thing that's got to be discussed. And I think we've all got to stand back and be rather more objective about topography and the anthropology, if you like, of that part of of Greater Europe. Undoubtedly, those eastern republics of Ukraine are are Russian speakers. Yes, of course they are, but they're much more Russian-oriented. So it may be that a future Ukraine has to have a different boundary to the current Ukraine, uh, accepting that there are parts of eastern Ukraine that feel themselves 
very much to be part of, of Russia. Then there is the issue of Crimea. Same point really applies. The yeah. land corridor um, from Crimea through to, to Russia. And maybe that's the price that Zelensky and the rest of the Ukrainians have got to accept to allow two-thirds of Ukraine to remain independent and separate. And then, of course, there is the issue of EU membership and NATO membership. And I think, again, part of the price they may have to pay is that either for now, for 20 years or forever, that they actually give up on that. And, and it's a very interesting point, which I only came across quite recently. We've all spotted the Ukrainian flag, blue and yellow. Why is it blue and yellow? It's yellow for the huge amounts of grain that they grow in that country and export, and it's blue for the blue skies under which they grow it. And why does that matter? Why has the EU dragged its feet on allowing Ukraine to join the EU? Well, the common agricultural policy would have been shot to pieces by the high volumes of grain that would have come into the uh, common agricultural policy from Ukraine. How um, interesting. can't get away from the realpolitik of all that. Isn't that appalling, though? Well, I, I may not be right. Um, I believe It I sounds very am, plausible. I've, yeah. I've had that on a very good authority that this is one of those issues. But all these things have to be weighed up. But stepping back from that particular point, yeah. I think it's also right to realise that before all this started, certainly majority of Russian people have always regarded Ukraine as part of greater Russia. So therefore, post the end of the Cold War, it probably was a step too far for us in the West to think that the Ukraine should be welcomed too quickly into the European Union and into NATO. So it may be that rather like Austria, it um, has to for, uh, adopt a form of neutrality. And um, we can support Ukraine um, as a democracy, upholding the rule of law, support it from the West, but actually recognize that it can't be fully a member. I don't know where this is going to finish up, but there are a lot of issues that are going to be thought through and talked through very carefully. Can I ask you just finally, Lord Janet, have you been surprised by how well the Ukrainian army military has performed, if that's the right word, or conducted itself against the Russians? By Because uh, it's clear they've inflicted huge casualties and um, taken out lots of planes and tanks. Well, yes, I have been surprised up to a point. But given that they are defending their own country, their own way of life, why wouldn't they fight like that? But what I've been more surprised about, and I think a lot of military observers have equally been surprised, is how poorly the Russian army has performed. We know after the end of the Cold War, the Russian armed forces pretty much disintegrated. But the reinvestment that's gone on in the last 5, 10, 12 years has been significant. And frankly, I think we all thought that they'd reached a level of competence and performance whereby if they struck down from Belarus towards Kyiv, they would probably do so quite quickly and quite efficiently, and they haven't. I think they've misbriefed their soldiers. I think their soldiers thought they were going in as liberators and peacekeepers. I think their equipment maintenance has been terrible. I think their logistics support has been awful. And put that against the Ukrainians who have fought brilliantly, it actually is no surprise that particularly in the north, the Russians have really, really struggled. Fascinating. That's General Lord Dannett, the former head of the British Army. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Andrew. Take care now. So a journalist holding an anti-war sign ran onto the set of a Russian evening news TV programme on state-controlled Channel 1 on Monday evening. The sign read, No war, stop the war, 
don't believe the propaganda, they are lying to you. The woman has been named as Marina Obisanikova, an editor at the channel. I'm joined now by Nikolai Petrov, who's Senior Research Fellow on the Russia and Eurasia programme at Chatham House. Nikolai, incredible bravery by this journalist. She could face a jail sentence of up to 15 years or potentially even worse. Yes, that's right. This is very uh, brave uh, thing. And uh, the problem is that lawyers are unable to get in touch with her and nobody knows what exactly is going on. And she signed it in English, Russians Against the War. The Russian media, of course, Nikolai, you know better than anyone, is state-controlled. That will have caused quite a meltdown, I would have thought, in the Kremlin when that was broadcast. Yes, absolutely. And uh, the dictator was uh, Putin's uh, favorite one. And not only she came with these uh, signs, but she did tell the Russian uh, no to the war. And uh, I think that uh, not only this is very brave behavior, but it uh, will make uh, a difference. Now, I was going to ask you, how much difference do you think it will make? And of course, also, Nikolai, I suppose it might encourage other journalists to perhaps try to break free from the incredible suffocating state control? I think uh, that the biggest problem connected with the fact that uh, more than half of ordinary Russians do support what is called the military operation. And the reason why I think is connected to a kind of psychological defense when even in cases when family members are giving calls to their parents, for example, from Ukraine to Russia, parents are not eager to uh, understand what's going on and, uh, uh, well, do not communicate with them. And now I think that uh, the fact that the first channel of state-controlled TV, which is watched by many millions of uh, Russians did show this. I think it can serve as an impetus uh, to think at least what's going on. And how important is the media in the way that Putin can enforce his rule, his iron grip in Russia, Nikolai? The fact that media are considered by the Kremlin to be very important can be illustrated by uh, recent developments when almost all semi-independent media, semi-independent channels were shut up, uh, were absolutely, well, closed from the public, meaning that, uh, and uh, it's going on with the internet as well, because uh, the Kremlin is afraid of horrible information coming from outside and changing the picture of Russian army liberating Ukrainians from uh, Nazis. And I guess the other point, Nikolai, the government is doing everything it can to shut it down. Social media can be an important tool against the government because if they can access social media, they will see the unvarnished truth about what's really happening in Ukraine. Yes, absolutely. Uh, The problem I see is connected with the fact that those uh, who are eager to to be fed by uh, state media and state propaganda are not looking for any alternative sources of information. It means that even now, when the government did its best in order to cut off many of uh, these sources, it's possible to find truth everywhere. But if uh, you think that you should keep 
comfortable in psychological sense because to understand that the leadership of your country are war criminals and your country is committing crimes. It's it's very uh, uncomfortable idea, very uncomfortable position for any any person. Just finally, the lawyers, as you said, for Marina Osivanikova, say they don't know where she is. There was even some speculation on the internet that she could be put to death, Nikolai. Is that likely, do you think, or is it more likely she will be jailed under the new law saying you cannot criticise 15 years in jail? I think it's unlikely, although I do understand uh, the problem uh, Russian government is uh, faced with in connection to her. And uh, I would explain this by the fact that they are trying to put pressure on her to show her refusing from this, well, very uh, brave behavior and explaining that somebody did push her, did inspire her to do this against her own will. Let's see. Mm. It happened recently in case of this Belarusian brave, well, internet uh, media uh, person Protasevich after the plane has been landed and uh, later he appeared to say that, well, he uh, wholeheartedly supports Belarus, uh, Belarusian dictator. Fascinating. We'll all be wishing for the very best for her, Nikolai. That's Marina Ovisanikova, who's been not been seen since her extraordinary and very brave protest on Channel One in Moscow. That's Nikolai Petrov, Senior Research Fellow on the Russia and Eurasia Programme at Chatham House. Thanks for joining us. A new coffee shop opening in London today aims to transform the lives of homeless people. It's based on the same success story they had in Scotland. The charity Social Buy employs many people who've been homeless and it's given out more than 180,000 food and drink packages a year. Social Bite coffee shops have opened in most Scottish cities after it launched in 2012 when a young homeless man, Peter, who'd been selling the big issue outside, Ask for a job. I'm joined now by Josh Littlejohn, who is the founder of Social Bite. Josh, congratulations. It's been a great success, your Social Bite charity. You're now in London. Whereabouts in London are you setting up shop? Yeah, thank you. Um, so today was our opening day in London, and we have a shop um, on the Strand, right in the heart right. of London, just directly opposite Charing Cross train station. Um, yep. So yeah, we're, we're so excited to, to be launching in London today. I know around that area, in the evening, vans come and give out a lot of food parcels to homeless people. Is that partly why you're in that part of London, Josh? Yeah, I mean, I suppose our business model is like a social enterprise model. So we have kind of two key drivers. One is the commercial to try and make it commercially sustainable. So, you know, for that reason, the Strand's obviously a great place and there'll be lots of commuters coming out of Charing Cross Station. But then the other side is charitable. So, you know, I believe the square mile around the Strand is is pretty much the epicentre of homelessness in the United Kingdom. I think there's more homeless people in that particular area than anywhere else in the whole of the UK. So it seemed a very fitting location for us to be from that perspective as well. And what sort of coffees are you selling in your shop? Every variety? Every variety, absolutely. I mean, we, we'd like to think we want to try and compete with, you know, all the big competitors out there, whether it's Starbucks or pret or, you know, any of your kind of independent coffee shops on quality yeah. and service and, and stuff. But as I say, you know, there's no private profit motive behind it. All of the profits made are reinvested in the, the social cause. Uh, and the two key areas of impact is around offering jobs in the cafe to homeless people um, and also... Yeah providing food through customer donations that customers effectively pay forward in advance 
And I think, right. you know, you mentioned, obviously, there's various charities giving out food in the mm. area. And I think what's particularly important about this form of food provision, more so than just giving someone a sandwich or a coffee, is the kind of psychological element of someone being able to come into a high street retail environment and join a queue behind, you know, maybe some office workers and just kind of be treated as a regular member of society and as a, as a customer effectively. And I think that's an important aspect of trying to break down some of the stigma and exclusion that's so prevalent in the homelessness issue. Yeah. And so when people come to Social Bite in the Strand, as with your shops in Scotland, is it obvious that you're a charitable enterprise, Josh? Yeah, you know, it's kind of interwoven into the branding in the shop. You know, we've got a little loyalty card, which, you know, explains some of the premise. And I think, you know, the staff are trained to outline a bit of the premise to the customers as they're uh, mm. you know being served so yeah it should be it should be very obvious and you know hopefully it's the kind of thing that will hopefully encourage people to come in and give it a try and also hopefully establish a bit of loyalty with maybe local office workers or local commuters and uh, will hopefully come and support it and do so regularly and it's a clever title isn't it the name of the business social bite yeah i mean obviously we set it up around 10 years ago now so we called it social mm. bite but uh, you know as you said in your introduction when we first started it, it didn't actually have anything to do with homelessness. It kind of happened by accident when, when this young man, Pete, came in and asked us for a job. So uh, the whole kind of concept evolved, at, you know, off the back of that. Um, and yeah, certainly the Social Bite title helps to kind of yeah, allude of to the, the social mission of it as well. And what happened to that young homeless man, Peter? Did he work with you for a while? Did he get his life yeah, back in order? Several, he did, several years. And, you know, we're still very good friends with him. Um, good. He is... You know, in his own flat now, he's got a few couple of children, and he's oh, currently, good. you know, got, got another job um, in Edinburgh, at a place called Nairns, um, and we we still, as a charity, give him some support, and uh, we also took his brother on, and we're, so you know, we're still close with a lot of the those guys that that kind of helped get the ball rolling with, with us ten years ago. Very good. And do you think this will be the first of many stores in England, Josh? I believe so. You know, this is a bit of a test case for us. So if this one's successful and it works then, you know, we'd love to try and do one in Manchester or Bristol or, you know, any kind of big city where homelessness is. We'd love to, to open our doors. But, you know, I think we want to see how this one goes first um, and yeah. take it from there, really. So hopefully, uh, you know, Londoners will get behind it and it'll be the first of many. Well, the very best of luck to you. That's Josh Littlejohn. He's the founder of Social Buy. It's in the Strand. It's by Charing Cross Station, opposite Charing Cross Station. So if you're going past, go in and buy a coffee. There's food too, I guess, Josh, is there? There certainly is, yeah. Sandwiches, paninis, uh, croissants. Very good. I'll be there. I look forward to meeting you. All right, that's Josh Littlejohn, the founder. So online lessons are going to be made available to refugee pupils as they transition to life in the UK from the horrors of Ukraine. That's according to the Education Secretary, Nadim Sahawi. Oak National Academy, an online classroom and resource hub, has rolled out an auto-translation function across all 10,000 of its online lessons. I'm joined now by Matt Hood, who is the principal of Oak National Academy. Matt Hood, so how does it work? First of all, explain to us how the Academy works. Is everything online or just some of it? We're a government-backed national online school and we were set up in April 2020 in response to the pandemic. Our teachers created effectively an online school. We have about 10,000 lessons covering everything that a four-year-old right the way through to a 16-year-old might cover uh, in school. And it's been used during that pandemic mainly for 
pupils who have been having to do their lessons at home while their schools have been partially closed. Now, one of the things right. that we've been thinking about over that period mm. of time is how do we help schools who have pupils who have English as a second language? This is relatively common in most schools across the country. And yeah. because of the crisis in Ukraine, we've been able to accelerate that work. And what that means is that all of those 10,000 lessons, so everything from stories that we tell four-year-olds right, right the way through to quadratic equations for 16-year-olds, has now been translated into Ukrainian and actually 14 other languages so that pupils for whom addition, uh, English is an additional language and specifically those Ukrainian refugees can integrate better into our school system when they arrive. That's a big task to have, and you've done it already. I mean, when did you start working on the Ukrainian translation, Matt? Just under two weeks ago, we started having conversations about whether we could accelerate this work. Because of the way yeah. the platform is built and because of Google's te uh, auto-translate technology, we've been able right. to integrate those two things with each other. You know, it won't be quite perfect. The AI isn't as brilliant as a translator is at the moment, but we think it's a really good start and it will be good enough and we can build and improve on that when we start to get feedback through from teachers. And have you bounced any of the um, translations off Ukrainian people to see that it really is good enough? <laughs> we've done some testing and we've also done some testing. There's a Welsh translation as well, which we've, we've done some testing on. We think good enough under the circumstances. Um, yeah. Like I said, it's never going to be quite perfect, uh, particularly where grammar is a slightly more complex. But it is incredibly difficult for teachers when they get pupils who don't speak English arriving in their classrooms. And this should help them make that transition of integrating those pupils into the day-to-day -day life of schools. The brilliant thing about young people is they're an absolute sponge for picking up new languages. And so it won't take those pupils very long to get fully integrated into the school system. And then we can continue to help them from there. And will you have to provide any other forms of support, do you think, Matt, for these kids? Some of them who are going to be pretty traumatised, I'd imagine, after what they've been through. Yeah, that is going to be a big challenge for our school system. Um, the Secretary of State announced that another 100,000 places were going to be made available in schools for these pupils. But what we really need to see is close working between schools, the government and local authorities to make sure all of the support that sits around the curriculum day to day is able to be provided to those pupils. That's going to be really, really important. And um, each one's going to come with an individual experience of their time over these horrific past few weeks. And if we don't address some of those underlying problems, that's going to create barriers to them accessing some of these lessons that we've made available. I know Ukraine is in chaos. It's horrific what's going on there, Matt. Is the Ukrainian government, is the Ukrainian education service helping out other countries, perhaps, including our own, with the potential for lessons and translations for kids? Because how many we think we could be have up to 100,000 in this country alone? What we know is actually the Ukrainian education department is really sophisticated in its approach to providing online schools and online lessons for its pupils you know, before this crisis began to unfold. And it was in a really strong position in providing some of those things. And we hope that these pupils will be able to go back to accessing those lessons in the Ukrainian curriculum in the Ukrainian languages as quickly as possible. Uh, and, and indeed, we might be able to continue working with them at, at that point. But for now, we're hoping this makes an immediate step in contribution. And um, I hope that the education department here is doing what it can to work with the education department in Ukraine to join those two things up. 
I don't for a second imagine that that's straightforward under the current circumstances facing Kiev. No, I'm sure that's right. Just finally, um, what's been happening with Oak National Academy? Now most kids, presumably, children are back at school with COVID receding as a threat to public health. So we still have about 40,000 weekly active users on our site. One of the things that we found is these resources and lessons that we created for a specific purpose when pupils were at home because schools were partially closed are now being used for a whole range of different reasons. Teachers use them when they might be ill and need a cover teacher to cover their lessons. Pupils are using them for homework. Teachers are helping them to help with their planning or reduce workload. And teachers are using them to help think about and see other people's curricula. So um, we're really pleased that this thing that was created for a specific purpose during the pandemic is now being used much more widely for a range of reasons, all optional, all free for, for teachers, parents and pupils to get their hands on should they need to. Great stuff. Well, good luck to it and very good luck with the Ukrainian children when they start arriving, which I imagine will be anytime soon. That's Matt Hood, who is the principal of Oak National Academy. Well, that's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Listener.